Welcome to Out With Dan, the podcast that spotlights and examines the voices of LGBTQ authors, characters, and our allies. Together, we lift our voices and we tell our stories. I'm Dan White. Join me as I chat with this week's author. Hello, and welcome back to Out With Dan. Today, I get an honor of speaking with my buddy, Catherine Shellman again, about her new book, The Last Drop of Hemlock. Welcome back, Catherine. Thank you so much, Dan. It's great to be here again. I love our chats. I do as well. I want to start, I'm going to show the cover of the book again. I'm going to start with the cover. Who designs the covers of these books, this series? the cover gets done through Minotaur, the publisher. Right. Um, and they, I just feel like they knock it out of the park every time. Like they, they really understand the the vibe of the books. And I mean, we always say, you know, like, don't judge a book by its cover. Like that is such a cliche, but we all do. Everyone, all do. You, you walk into a bookstore and there's so many books there. Everyone is looking at covers to start with. And I feel like I've really lucked out in terms of having just these very evocative, eye-catching images that really give you a sense of what, what the book is going to feel like when you're reading it. So I feel very fortunate there. I I agree. And I, I do think we do find things because we're visual people. We see mm-hmm. something that appeals to us. But I totally agree with you. I think they certainly get the vibe of the books. This is the second one in this series. And it the, the cover is just perfect. It's perfection. It's so funny seeing you holding that because I actually haven't seen a physical copy of it yet. Oh, all like the weird shipping stuff that's still going on. My copies haven't arrived. <laughs> so I'm looking, I'm like, ooh, I want to touch it. <laughs> right. I'll send it to you. It's worth a read, Catherine. <laughs> Once again, you bring back some of the same characters we saw in Last Call at the Nightingale. Uh, you bring back Vivian and B and Vivian's sister Florence. And I feel I know these characters and I enjoy them so much. And you brought us another mystery again. So that's a good thing. How um, how tied to these characters are you? I feel, I mean, I have to get so invested in my characters when I'm writing them. That's where I start with every story. I Some writers start with, you know, they have a particular scene in mind that sort of leads them into the rest of it, or they have their setting, or I always start with characters. Like for me, I I need to know who the people are that I'm dealing with. And then once I know who they are, I get a sense of the world that they're living in because I think we're, who we are is so dependent on the environment that we, we are living in. And then once I know who these people are and what environment they're in, I can see sort of the conflicts that that creates for them and then that tends to be what leads into the story and into the mystery and into sort of their their personal arcs. But for me, it always starts with the characters and with just these people that I find very interesting and very engaging, but also very deeply flawed. Um, and I think that's always what leads to sort of the most interesting storytelling, where you have these very flawed people living in <laughs> this very flawed, imperfect world and just the conflicts that that creates either in their broader lives or between them as individuals. And I just, I find that so fun to explore. And I think that's really, for me, that's very easy to connect with, even in a historical setting, because Mm -hmm. so much of, you know, that, that like interpersonal conflict or the way we interact with our world and are in conflict with our environment, it's, 
that's the same, no matter what age, what era you're living in. You know, like people in the 1920s are having the same fights with their sisters that I'm having with my sister now. Like it just, it feels very consistent and very relatable, I think. I agree with you. And I think that the thing is, is humanity. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things. And I also, from reading the after notes, I'm sure that has a better title than I just gave it. <laughs> the acknowledgements, I think it is. So I, I read some of the things that you put in there. And I realized the amount of uh, of history that you've dug through to make sure that it's accurately correct. And then I also look at the 1920s, which we see in television and books, you know, it's a jazz age and it's a lot of fun and it's a lot of decadence. And yet there was so much poverty and so much class distinction and racism and classism and elitism. And then I think, what has changed it's different now, but it's it's really rather similar. Do you want to speak on that? I think I found that a lot of times in my research too, it's really caught me off guard because we think of, you know, this here's this era that's a hundred years ago. It it feels like it should feel so different. Um, but there's still, you know, that that really the huge gap of inequality and like the problems of uh, you know, just these very isolated elite communities that are not, you know, whatever is going on broadly, more culturally, they're not being affected by it in the same way as people who don't have the same resources. You look at something like prohibition and when that went into effect, one of the really weird rules that came with it was that you could, obviously buying alcohol was illegal. Lots of people did it anyway. Right. (laughs) It's a big part of the book. (laughs) But it was not illegal to drink any alcohol that was already in your possession. Um, So wealthy people who had lots of money to spare and lots of space in their homes or their second homes or their businesses, they spent, you know, the time before uh, prohibition was passed, but between that and when it went to effect, buying up what was called provisions. (laughs) They They just stocked up on it with like just cases of alcohol and so, and then that was perfectly legal for them to then consume that um, as often as they wanted uh, in their private homes. And that's just a really, and it's a glaring example of the way that if you had money and you had resources, you had a perfectly easy way to get around this law that affected everyone else in a completely different way. And I think that's something that in a lot of ways hasn't hasn't changed. You know, if you have resources it's a lot easier to get around laws that are either damaging or inconvenient or or act- actively harmful to someone who doesn't have those resources. I mean, you even think of something like if if you if you see like a parking sign and it's like you know park park here, it's illegal, you'll be fined. Being fined for something legal just basically means it's legal if you have money because yes. you can yes. pay the fine. Whereas if you if you don't it's a lot. It's a lot more of a deterrent to you. So I think there's there's a lot of ways in which that you know, the the interaction between what is actually illegal for people with resources mm-hmm. versus people mm-hmm. without those resources is very much the same, even across that hundred year gap of time. I totally agree. We have a former first lady of California who never ever parked in a parking space. She just left her car in the middle of the street. But she never, it was never towed. <laughs> so there is this big thing about resources. Yeah. One of your characters, Mrs. Henry, is a collector of people who need 
help. And that is something that I find so beautiful. I loved Mrs. Henry in the first book, and I love her again now. She takes on the role of the global mother, maybe. Uh Um, Is that what you feel about her? I think so. I think in a lot of ways to me, she is she's a community builder Um, and she's not she's not limited in who she thinks of as part of her community in a lot of ways. You know, she tends to see we have we have something in common, whether that's uh, our race or our um, our our social status or our lack of money and resources. And she sees like we we need each other as a result of those similarities. And so she collects these people who need that kind of help and she doesn't hesitate to offer it. Um, There's a I can't remember now whether it's in the first book or the second one. I think it's in the first book. But, you know, there's this family that's new in New York and she just she brings them. It's only one scene, but she brings them into her life and into her home. And is like, you you need this help. And here I'm offering it to you. Um, and I think, I think there's a lot of, I think there are a lot of people out there like that, um, especially in, I think more, more marginalized communities or, um, more impoverished communities. I think Mm -hmm. because people Mm -hmm. have to band together, they have to create community in order to survive. Whereas again, when you have those resources, you're a little more self-sufficient, even if you, (laughs) even if that's not a healthy way to be, you know, because we all, we need that community. We need that sense of depending on each other. I think that makes us all so much more functional and happy, both as individuals and as a society. But I think you see that urge to create community and to reach out and sort of band together. And like you said, collect people into a group that can support each other in people who, who are living in those more, more marginalized communities. And I think that's, that's something we all could benefit from from Absolutely. more, but it's it's something that I think you you really see in people who don't have necessarily the social supports or the monetary supports already in place. They have to provide that for each other. I have found in life that that is something that I see quite often. I see the willingness to help someone else, oftentimes by people who don't have enough for themselves, and they realize that lack in their own life. So to switch the channel just a little bit, you've also brought back some um, some people who are extremely challenging. You bring back Hattie Wilson and Miss Ethel. And I tell you, so just as we talked about uh, in your first book, Nightingale, um, you write a lot of strong women characters. And that's that's so fun to read. And these two particular people are, they are on the topper end of, the scales, you know, they they are not dependent on the neighbors to take them in, and they cause a lot of mayhem for our main characters, and I <laughs> love that. <laughs> are they fun to write? Oh, they are. It's it's fun to write a villain, or if not a villain, then I mean that's a very strong because people are people, and everyone's going to yes. do some bad things and some good things. But to write someone who's such an antagonist, and to write them, <laughs> you have to you have to for me at least, I have to get in that mindset a little bit. Like, okay, I don't want to just have them do antagonistic things or have them throw up obstacles for no reason. Like, it has to make sense to them why yes. they are doing those things. Uh, otherwise it just comes across as this very caricatured, like, aha, you're a bad guy. So, <laughs> um, so it is, it is very fun to write them. And it, but it also like, it's, it's very cringy also. Like you get through the, I get through writing those things. It's like, Oh, I don't, I don't like it. <laughs> but, 
then I, I hope other people feel that way reading it too. Well, well, I did. I mean, I so because I'd sort of met them in the first book mm -hmm. and they recur in this book. The great thing is we saw who they were in the first book and we see that they remain the same. And I think that's human nature because it it isn't very often that people really change an awful lot unless something traumatic has happened. Mm -hmm. Typically, if you're a, a good person or a bad person, and that's so simplistic, then you remain that type of person. Mm -hmm. I do want to mention one character that I was just... I was so thrilled to see Mr. Sun reappear. That was just, it's very short, just as it was in the first book, but it was just so loving and heartfelt. Was that fun to write? It it was because as you know from reading the books and anyone who picks them up will do family and like found family. And yes. that idea of who is filling those roles in your life is a very consistent through line. And in a lot of ways, it's sort of background. It underlies mm -hmm. a lot of those relationships. Um, and in, in particular, Vivian and Florence's search for their own family of origin mm -hmm. and uh, sort of how they feel about that search, which is in a lot of ways, two very different mm -hmm. sets of feelings for them. Um, but it was, it was, it felt very, it, I felt like it, writing that book, there's so many hard things that happen and, and so many difficult relationships. It was a, it was very much a moment for me as the writer to just say like, okay, sometimes someone new comes into your life and it might just be for a short amount of time, but it can be a good relationship. It can be a Absolutely. good moment. Um, Absolutely. And you sort of get that, 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 that breath of like, oh, okay. Some of this is, <laughs> some of this is okay. <laughs> because I think that ends up, you know, no one's, no one's life and no one's relationships are consistently one thing or the other, you know, people, people come in and out and we have all these different interactions with them and some of them will be challenging mm -hmm. and some of them will be very nurturing and everyone experiences both of those. And you kind of, you hope it'll be more on the second one, <laughs> but in a book, at least it's a little more interesting if it's mostly the first one, but you still need those moments of the other one too. Otherwise it's just. Well, exhausting. I think otherwise it's just, it, it is exhausting. I think that's just the word for it. That's a great thing about your books. We have a cross section of all different kinds of characters, all different kinds of people, especially the found family. It is, it runs throughout it. You know, the chins show up again. They do some things uh, that are just so, heartfelt. Mm -hmm. But I feel like we got a clear picture of who they were. And that's that's one of the things that I, I celebrate about your books that I think that you do so eloquently is you give us a broad spectrum of people. And we, the readers, get to choose who we like, who we don't like, and to root for them. And you do give us moments where in the darkest hour, there's someone to root for. And I think that's a it's something that keeps me wanting to turn the page. Well, I appreciate knowing that because I know a lot of the <laughs> characters in these books are, even the main characters, even the protagonists are difficult people <laughs> in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, in my other series, the Lily Adler books, I think it's much more, it, there's, a, there's a little more of that black and white mystery where there's, you know, you know, even if characters make decisions that you don't necessarily agree with, overall, you're like, oh, I can point to this person and say, you are a good person. You do good things in the world. Um, with the with the Nightingale books, there's a lot more gray area, I think, not just in the overall story, but 
even within the individual characters. Like these are these are people who are making a lot of questionable choices in order to survive in a very difficult world. And I think a lot of times, even writing, you know, Vivian's the main character, but even a lot of times writing her, I'm like, and now she's going to do something stupid. <laughs> she is not going to make a good choice in this scene. And but that's that's that character that feels like what she would do in that moment because she is a, a very flawed and I think in a lot of ways very hurt person. Um, and she's she's seeking out a lot like she's seeking that found family and she's trying to find a place for herself. But in doing so, she she pursues a lot of a lot of directions that are not smart and are not healthy. Um, and, and she's and she's young. She is, yeah. And and I think that's one of the things when I read the first book, you know, that we we really see so much more that they're both young. They were orphaned um, Mm -hmm. and they're trying to find their way in the world. And it's, and of course, as I said earlier, as a reader, that's so fun because we too are finding our way through their world. Yes. And with Vivian, we still have a bit of um, will she, won't she, uh, in so many different ways, and I love that. And then I love the fact that this time Florence gets to be a little bit more out of her shell, mm-hmm. and that's that is so sweet. I enjoyed that a lot. Florence is a very fun character to write. It's interesting because looking back at the first book, the relationship between her and Vivian became so central. And it actually wasn't in the first draft. Florence was very much a periphery character. And I think in a lot of ways, in the first book, she be, her and the relationship between her and Vivian became very much the, the emotional heart of the story. And that that continues a bit in, in this book too, in Last Drop of Hemlock. I think that there's that's a that's something that really grounds Vivian. Florence also makes much better choices, <laughs> I think, than Vivian does. <laughs> well, you know, and I think here again, I think you've done such a good job with that because Florence in the first book really stays home, mm-hmm. basically. And it is a little easier if you don't have the world's trappings circling around you and tempting you. So Florence does get a chance to sort of stand back and say, well, maybe we should go left or right or whichever direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, of course, the impulsiveness of Vivian is is what is delicious. You know, it's you know that she's going to run straight ahead, whether she runs into the wall or not, but she's going to run at full force <laughs> because in her mind, this is the way she has to go. And I love that about her. It's she is fun to write because personally, I am uh, I am more of the play it safe homebody type. <laughs> I am I am more the Florence in my life, um, but it's really fun to get out of that that mindset and be like, who? If you are a person who is just going to be like, who cares? I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. This seems like the this is the first thing I thought of, and so I'm gonna do that first thing, and I'm not gonna think it through past that. Uh, it's very fun to write that to write that character. Well, and I think that's why we have such a good time chatting because I'm I'm on Vivian's team. You know, it's like <laughs> we'll we'll deal with the carnage later whenever we have to come back to it. So, <laughs> so it is important because we've we've talked about a lot of broad things. It is important to say that this is a fine mystery. It is oh, wonderful. You. It's it's engaging. Uh, it's something you want to read. We have it. 
we have a death that starts off the book. So, you know, we're, we're doing all the right mystery things. But I did want to talk to you about sort of the general idea of where this book is set and who these people are. And once again, it is a wonderful read. The cover again is, if I ever learned to hold it in the right place, The Last Drop of Hemlock. Catherine, do you have um, social media or a website you'd like to share? Absolutely. Um, it, links to everything are on my website, katherineshellman.com. In terms of social media, I'm most often on Instagram, which is uh, Catherine Writes, and that's Catherine with a, with a K. Perfect. Um, yeah, and I'm... I'm currently, I also have a newsletter, which you can sign up for on my website, oh, which is good. at this point, the best way to sort of follow along. I tend to pop in and out of social media, especially when I'm drafting. And right now I'm working on book three in this series, which is a lot of fun, uh, but tends to keep me off of other parts of the, of the internet while I'm really focusing. So one of the best ways to keep up is to sign up for my newsletter on my website. I love it. I love it. Everyone should sign up if you haven't already. Catherine, thanks again for stopping by the chat. I appreciate it. Um, the Last Drop of Hemlock is out on June 6th, and it is yes. absolutely magical. Thank you so much, Dan. It's great talking with you today. Good talking with you. Hang on for me just a second. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Out with Dan. You can find more information about this podcast and its host at outwithdan.com on Twitter at OutWithDan, and on Instagram and Facebook at GoOutWithDan. This podcast is hosted by Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, and the theme music is provided by bensound.com. Join us again soon for the next episode of Out With Dan.